You're listening to the DMBA podcast, where we share business confidence for designers. My name is Alan. I am a business designer and founder of the DMBA program. So this is another guesstimation challenge episode. Uh, a few months back, we recorded the first ever guesstimation challenge, and today we'll do the second one with two new contenders. Uh, so maybe you're asking yourself, what is guesstimation challenge? Well, it's a game in which we try to make fast, rapid estimations with very little data. For example, a question could be, how many miles of highway does the US have? And then contenders, players have to get as close to the correct number without the use of any research or resources. They have to basically guesstimate these numbers and the only two they have uh, or that they are allowed to use is uh, a calculator, pen and paper. Uh, so basically this game imitates a real-world scenario in, at our work where we need to estimate certain numbers for our projects like size of competitors, how much revenue a product or service could make, and so on. We'll talk more about that also after each question and we'll try to explain how contenders came up with their number and how this is maybe relevant for our work. So today we have three questions, three rounds prepared, so three guesstimations. Uh, so basically the one who uh, wins more rounds also then wins and takes home the trophy. Uh, so you need to have at least, you know, you need to be better at least two rounds. So now let's meet our two contenders today, Joe and Sheriff. Uh, welcome, Joe. Jo welcome, Sheriff. Thank you. Excited to be here. Hello. Let's start with just quick uh, round of introductions for listeners to get to know you. So maybe Joe, do you want to kick it off? Sure. I'm Joe Roberts, and I'm a mentor in the DMBA program. I'm also a business designer at Profit, and I live in Brooklyn, New York. And I am Sharif Labib. I'm from Egypt, based in Luxembourg. Uh, I am a senior advisor at PwC and a business designer. I'm also a mentor at the DMBA. And would you both consider yourself a numbers person or not so much? I love numbers, but I'm actually really bad at doing mental math. So <laughs> Excel is my biggest friend. <laughs> I, I, I get scared of pressure, so. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. But hopefully today we'll show also that how much can you do with just very simple math also. Um, so as Joe and Sharif said, they're also mentors in the DMBA program where they help DMBAers uh, gain business confidence by guiding them through the program and providing thoughtful feedback which also reminds me that applications for the next DMBA program are open right now. So the next program starts on September 27th. And if you're looking to gain business skills relevant for designers, have a look at uh, d.mba slash course and d.mba slash apply. Good. And now let's get right into the first question. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do is I'll give you a uh, question. Uh, if you have any follow-up questions, let me know. And then I'll also give you one tip or like a baseline data point with which you can work because that also imitates the real-world scenario because we usually do have some data, right? Some We usually start with something and then try to extrapolate from there. Okay, so the first question goes into financials and revenue. Uh, and here it goes. So what percentage of Apple's revenue comes from iPhone and we will use the data from the last quarter of 2020 so Q4 of 2020 
So again, what percentage of Apple's revenue as a company comes from iPhone as a product category? Now, the tip I will give you is that services, so another product category which consists of Apple Music, App Store, iCloud, and so on. So services make uh, up 22.5% of their revenue. And they are the second biggest category. Okay, so what percentage of Apple's revenue comes from iPhone? Any follow-up questions or is it, is it all clear? I have one clarifying question. Is this okay. just iPhone hardware sales? Um, what do you mean? So it could be like accessories and stuff? So not including accessories or any kinds of services through the iPhone? Services for sure not. Um, I would need to check on the hardware. Uh, if it's like accessories or not, but I would assume that it is because other other categories are like iMac and so on. So I guess all of that bundles under uh, the iPhone bracket. Cool. Cool. Okay. You have three minutes starting now. Cool. So three minutes are over. Um, can you both just drop your answers in the chat so that you are not affected by each other so that you don't cheat? <laughs> so there we go. So we have Sharif with 20% and we have Joe with 30%. So what I'd like to stress again is that it's not even about this number. So the estimation is usually not about the result. It's more about how we got here because that uncovers really interesting things for our design uh, and things we have to work with and things we have to consider when designing. So with uh, with having said that, maybe Sharif, do you want to first explain how we got to 20%? <laughs> okay, I mean, honestly, the, the, the calculation in my mind was as simple as possible because I felt like I'm missing a lot of variables. I made the assumption that uh, if the services are... Uh, the, the users of these services will probably each be having an iPhone, though... So I kind of thought that, um, that the, 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 the percentage would be around the same figure, although the services are probably recurring costs while the, the, the price of the phone is a one-time thing, but the price of the phone is much higher than the, 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 the recurring cost. But also you don't buy a phone every year. It could be once every two years. So I guess the prices could match, meaning that the percentages could be quite similar. Ah, uh, interesting. So you basically try to see how many services from apple a average iphone customer would buy and then you try to see if that number is the same so what would that mean that if i buy iphone every four three two years i don't know let's say two years and if it costs 800 bucks that i would have to spend spend 800 bucks on the services right that that was the assumption I ran because I, I was thinking it could be around ten dollars, fifteen dollars a month for services. And usually, if I'm paying for Apple Music, paying the, for those kind of services, I would usually be using an iPhone. Chances are, I'll be using the phone as well. Right. So I kind of rendered that the numbers would be quite similar. And if I'm buying a phone every two years, I'll be probably paying the same amount of services over the two Interesting, years. yeah. So I just did the quick calculation. So if if we assume that iPhone is bought every two years and that it costs $800 on average, then an average customer would have to spend $33 per month on Apple services for it to be the same on the 20%. More or less. Okay, okay, interesting. Cool, cool. 
You got anything else? Okay. Nope. Then Joe, you said 30%. So go ahead. Yeah. So I started top down with world population of 8 billion. I've 5% <laughs> have an iPhone. Um, so that gave me 400 million people with an iPhone. I thought an iPhone maybe lasts five years. Um, and so 20% bought one last year. So 80,000, sorry, 80 million iPhone sales last year with an average price point all in of $400. So that mm -hmm. gave me revenue for last year of 32 billion. And then mm -hmm. at that point, I looked back at the question and realized that you hadn't asked for revenue. <laughs> you had <laughs> asked for the percentage of sales. So then I, I was like, oh, well, I'll just use this as a gut check. So then I thought, okay, well, if that means that the price or the revenue just from the iPhone last year was 32 billion, I thought the iPhone has to be the highest revenue for Apple because that's kind of the flagship product. Um, it, it can be sold even more beyond laptops um, or other hardware things that they sell. Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought it must be the highest. So let's say it was 30%. So that would mean their total revenue last year was a little over $100 billion. And I mm -hmm. thought, that seems reasonable. And then you told us it was time. So I threw in my 30%. <laughs> You know, Joe, I was that close to writing 13. <laughs> <clears throat> Sharif, did you have a guess of what you thought was the number one? Sorry? Did you have a guess of what you thought was the, the number one category if it wasn't the iPhone? Because now I'm wondering if I missed some big... I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe I didn't. Yeah, maybe I didn't specify. But part of the tip was that services are the second biggest uh, product category. I don't know if if I if I said uh, that or not, but no, I think you might have. I did not consider that. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. So services oh, well. are the second biggest with twenty two point five percent. So um, it it goes north of that. I think what's interesting, even without me giving up the result yet, is just seeing the two different approaches. Uh, so you you Joe, you used uh, right away the the top down. We're starting like with a big number, with the number of uh, people in the world, and then what percentage of them are buying iPhone, etc. And um, how would we say? What did you use, Sheriff? That's not even a top-down, nor a bottom-up, right? No <laughs> <laughs> it was it's more extrapolating. Like a share of wallet, yeah. Share of wallet, right, right. Um, but let me give you the result. So the result is actually for the forty point nine percent. Right, so it's twice okay. as big as services. The interesting thing is that uh, in passing, I mentioned that we're looking at the number for the last quarter of 2020, and the reason I said this is because for sales of, um, especially Apple sales, sometimes if you know which products get released when, you can try to uh, guess. Yes, usually in September. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. Uh, usually yeah, iPhones yeah. are launched in September, sometimes in October. Yeah. Um, so, but for some reason, the Q1, so the quarter one, usually has the highest percentage of Apple revenue, and at that point, it even reaches sixty percent. Uh, so, quarter four was actually, I believe, it was the lowest in the twenty twenty. Let me have a quick look. Yeah, that was the lowest percentage for that year it was 60.9% in the first quarter. And then it just went down. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, actually, why 
why this question is so interesting and why I decided to, you know, share it today is because understanding companies, best-selling products, flagship products is important exercise, especially looking from the outside in. Uh, it helps us understand where probably the company is uh, focusing the most, you know, uh, where they are investing most heavily. And it, most, it, it may also tell us where a company may be most uh, threatened if somebody tries to tag them there, right? So if another company came in and took iPhone's market share, that would really hurt. Uh, at the same time, it also kind of tells the story of diversification. So iPhone used to be even a higher percentage of that. And what Apple decided to do since 2018, more or less, was kind of focus on services as a product category revenue to make them more, um, to have more planable uh, stream of revenue and also to be more defendable if somebody comes and takes more iPhone market share. Um, but I also wanted to ask the two of you, does this question remind you of any situation that you had at your work or anything like a pro-typical challenge when you are designing the business model or just in general approaching a new project? I think actually Sharif's approach of trying to extrapolate from the services spend, what the average share of wallet might be for a typical iPhone customer is interesting because for a lot of our clients, they're trying to transition from primarily selling products to services. So that's often the case that we're making to them of based on this physical product that you're selling today, we think with these additional services, you'd get recurring revenue and initial share of wallet could be X, but then it can grow because it can also grow up into all of these new categories based on your customers' needs. Yeah, uh, I assume you both see a lot of these like companies trying to grow from hardware to software. Mm -hmm. We can also spend a minute or two just explaining why is that, you know, why do companies try to do that? I mean, there's... There possibly is a lot of, of, of reasons. And I guess one of the main ones that we're currently facing as well is more of a sustainable aspect. People are trying to go away from uh, using like hardware materials and, and try to focus more on, on leveraging on like the, the co-ownership of products in order to, to reduce the impact on the environment. But that also is a way like the, the kind of the sharing community in terms of business and this kind of business model has been growing recently a lot i mean if we're talking within the hotel industry or like airbnb and uh, like this kind of approach or uh, where they kind of try to encourage that the money comes from more services and less from hardware and it has been quite successful like this I think for a lot of our clients, the, the big benefit that they see of going from products to services is that there is no limit on scale for services. Um, so like uh, this is written about a lot on um, Stratechery aggregation theory, mm -hmm. where if you can build a digital platform to connect with customers, you can then essentially get to a point where you have no new marginal costs to serve new customers like in the app store. Um, and so you have your fixed cost, but you can bring on more and more people. It becomes even stronger as you bring on more people. You learn more about them. You can cross sell more things to them. Um, and then, and your costs just go down. You, whereas with a physical product, there's always going to be a marginal cost to serve a new customer.
Mm. I, I guess it's also quite more agile and quite adaptable according to the user feedback. And since things are moving towards more customers interested and push, pushing a solution on people, having a software or a service as, as, a, as the product you're providing is much easier to adapt and at much less cost to, to what the market actually needs than delivering and producing a product and going to the market with it and then figuring out that something went wrong with the research, the cost of actually redoing the whole process is much higher. Mm -hmm. And then one aspect is also like the planable revenue because a lot of these services are sold as subscription. And then as a company, you don't have these like, as I said before, you have a huge spike with iPhone sales when they come out. Mm. But with iCloud, with Apple Music, it's like very, it's much more planable. Um, yes, people can still leave you. Like a lot of people can still leave you in one month or one quarter, but you can much quicker see that something is going wrong and then react to it, etc. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So if I would have to sum up this first question, it would be like financials, you know, revenue, etc. So now let's go to the second one, which is which goes a little bit more into this category of production, into how we create stuff, how we create value in the business model sense. So do you two like movies? Yeah? yeah. Okay. I see some head shaking, so that's great. So I think then you'll like this question. <laughs> Am I gonna still like movies? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Okay, so here's the question. How many days does it take to create an average Hollywood studio movie? So I repeat, how many days does it take to create an average Hollywood studio studio movie? And here's the tip. There are four stages typically to recording a movie. So there is the first announcement. There is the pre-production, shooting, and post-production. And to give you another, uh, another data point, the post-production takes 301 day on average for a movie. Any follow-up questions or is that clear? Post-production is 301 days? Yes. Okay. Okay, so three minutes start now. Okay, so drop your answers in the chat. Okay, we have Joe with 405 <laughs> and we have Sharif with 850 days. Wow. Okay. <laughs> actually the reason i wanted to have this question in there is because i wanted to talk a little bit about the gut check and how we use the gut check in the in the guesstimations um but yeah maybe joe first explain um how did you get to 405 um so i started with shooting because i thought that would be the easiest to create an estimate about and i thought to myself i've seen there's been Oscar years where one actor is up for three different roles. So I thought the maximum that an actor can be in in a year is three movies. Um, and let's say they're only on set for half the year because they have families and, and other obligations. So that gives them six months that they can be on set. And if they're in three movies, that would be two months per movie. So I did 60 days for shooting. Um, then based on this is a funny proxy, but in my own work, when we do research, we assume that the research prep will take half as long as the actual research. So I just <laughs> use that same assumption for pre-pro versus shooting. 
So shooting is 60 days. I thought pre-pro would be 30 days. Um, and then for the announcement piece, I just put an assumption of two weeks. So 14 days, since that's more kind of like PR, more, uh, more of a, like a routinized thing where there's less things that could come up. Um, so right. then I added in the post-production number and that's how I got to 405. And uh, I'm just wondering, like when you saw this number 405, did you, you know, like try to use the gut check to see, oh, does it, does that make sense or? I thought a little over a year seemed to somewhat make sense. I work in book publishing, so a lot of books get turned into movies. And I thought that that seemed like vaguely right, but it would take a little longer than a year to right. do that process. Yeah, yeah. But I really love how you, took, how you took the one thing that you, you, you already knew, you know, like, okay, I know that I did see an actor in three different movies in one year. So this means that, you know, they could have three movies in a year and then they have some time off and you use this as a, uh, as a way to calculate. And even if it's wrong, you know, you know, you have one data point that you can go back and look up. So, um, that was cool. So 405 and Sharif 850. All right. Yes. I, I, I covered, um, I think my calculation covered the time frame of a movie production, not necessarily the day spent working on it. So my the way I approach it was, okay, we have four stages and usually from announcement to production, of course, based on the kind of movie, based on the the, the, the type of production. Because again, just, just to point out, post-production can vary according to the type of movie. A lot of movies include a lot of CGI and, and, and where post-production can be much, much more dominant in terms of the process and whatnot. But I just ran with the assumption of the over Bowl, which usually I saw that for an average like Marvel movie or whatnot, it takes about two years from announcement out till it's in theaters. And then, but announcement is not usually so announcement to theaters. I, I said around maybe seven hundred thirty days, and then that's the the two years. But the announcement is not usually the initiation of the whole process because to announce you need the whole um, approval of the, the actual content that this movie will actually be produced. So the script and whatnot should be like pitched to the production studio and whatnot. And I gave that a time frame of around four months mm. prior to the announcement of the movie. So that added a hundred, an extra 180 days in total. So I, uh, yeah, I calculated based on uh, the, the, the overall time frame that based on my, my experience with movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it definitely helps in this in this case and you did get closer so the actual number is 871 days from the first announcement okay. to the release <laughs> i think one thing that i also got through your uh thinking was that we didn't specify if this is just working days or is it just actual days mm. that it takes to get there yeah and it's actual days it's not like working days uh, because especially the first announcement is actually the longest uh, stage uh, on average it takes 309 days um, so this is from the date when uh, it's public publicly announced that the film will be made um, this is like the thing the things around script um, and blah 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 yeah, I'm just reading what it is <laughs> Uh, this is basically, yeah, the research phase and when it's announced. And then it takes a lot of time before you collect the team. And this takes almost a year. What's interesting, though, is that 
comedies take uh, the the shortest time to create to to be made. Uh, on average, a little bit more than six hundred days. And the uh, adventure and sci-fi movies take the longest, more than one thousand uh, days. So there is some difference also in the how hard it is to make these uh, these these movies. Um, I'm gonna ask again. Does this this type of question remind you of anything that you do at your work? Any any calculations you have to do around the back end of the business models and something like that? Uh, because the thing that uh, I find interesting about this question is that sometimes you just need to understand the constraints of how long it takes to create a product. Like for example, now that we know that it takes almost two years, two and a half years to create a a movie, a proper movie, like you know, it puts in perspective uh, how fast you have to be with ideas. Like if you want to create a movie about pandemic, uh, COVID pandemic, you know, even if you started exactly on the date when it was announced, it would take you almost three years to get it out. And then you even ask yourself, does it make sense to um, to to do this? And this reminds me of one conversation I had with a friend who is a um, who is a director. And he said that you with, with movies, it's really important to be, have a good timing. So you almost have to know what's going to be hot in three years because you have to start working on it a little bit before that. And I find this really fascinating to 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 as as a design challenge, you know, to know. I think something this highlights for me is the danger of your own biases when you're doing mm. this kind of math because the the closest knowledge that I had was to from book publishing of books that got made into movies, but that's actually quite unique because the book has already been written. Um, so you already have a lot of the, the pieces that are needed. There's probably going to be a lot less revisions needed to the screenplay part of it. Um, and often the author signs on then to help with it. So it might streamline some of those early pieces that I was really mm -hmm. condensing. Yeah. Yeah. If we take 300 days from the first announcement, uh, off of your estimate, then we would get pretty close to it. Um, but yeah, I guess this now means that the result is one, one, right? Oh, that's going to be. Interesting last round. <laughs> we couldn't have scripted this better. Um, okay, so this one is uh, very... Um, it's a topic that uh, it's on everybody's mind. It's around demographics and especially about vaccination rates. So hopefully you don't know this by, by heart, but let's see. So here's the question. How many UK residents... So I repeat, how many UK United Kingdom residents have received two doses of COVID-19 vaccination as of July 4th. Okay, so you have to estimate in millions, millions of people who have um, received two doses of COVID-19 vaccination. So I took UK because none of you live in the UK and that felt like a fair uh, <laughs> yeah. fair I mean, Luxembourg would have been an easier number it's just not a <laughs> <laughs> so the tip I'll give you is that the population of UK is estimated to be a little bit above 68 million people at the moment okay so you have 68 million people at the moment and the question is how many residents have received two doses of COVID-19 vaccine any clarifying questions? 
<laughs> Are we allowed to ask when they started back? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't have this data either, so no, that's it's not allowed. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you have three minutes. Okay, so time is up. Drop your answers in the chat. So Joe's estimate is 11.3 million. Sharif's is 8.1. Again, population of UK is 68. So uh, maybe Joe, you go first. How did you get to 11 million? So I was listening to The Daily this morning. <laughs> The New York Times podcast, and they said that the U.S.'s full vaccination rate right now is 50%. Um, and I know the U.S. has been ahead, so I assume that the U.K. had half of that so that they have a 25% full vaccination rate. So that would be 17 million people. And then I, I wasn't sure what the vaccines available are in the U.K., but I assume that two-thirds of them require two shots, um, and a third of them is a single shot. So then I took the 17 million and took two thirds of that. And that's how I got to 11.3 million. Okay. Sharif, you said to 8.1. How did you get to 8.1? Yeah, I, I, I made a few assumptions. So the first assumption is that they started vaccinating January this year. So I, that gives us six months plus the four days of July to put us on an average of 184 days. That is... You need to exclude weekends. They don't do vaccines on weekends. That's another assumption. So I hope I'm right. So it got us down to around 136, 136. And then I made the assumption that on average, 60,000 vaccines a day puts me at 8.1 million. Okay, nice. I mean, this is really great <laughs> from the perspective of the process because one of you used the bottom-up. So Sharif, you basically started with the capacity and how many you can do per day and then you multiplied it. And Joe, you had a data point from from elsewhere, which was more of a top-down data point, and you used that. So maybe before we go into the result, maybe how did you this? How do you usually decide which one to use when you're guesstimating uh, certain numbers? I almost always do top-down first, just because it's the the easiest one to do to make some quick cuts, and then do bottom-up next, and then make sure that they can be reconciled. And that's when sometimes you'll find that your top-down one is really crazy because you had one you put in 10% instead of 50% and now it's thrown everything off. So if you, if let's say that you actually did both and you got from top-down 11.3 and from bottom-up you got 8.1, which is what Sheriff got, how confident would you feel in your estimate? I So to me, that would actually be within an acceptable range. I would probably just add a little bit more to my bottoms up, but stay closer mm -hmm. to that one. Yeah, yeah. What about you, Sharif? How, how do you decide? I mean, for me, I think it depends on how much assumptions or variables I can assume. So for me, I usually go with the top down if I have less numbers to go on with. Like I would say it's maybe the same thought process I did in the previous question. It's like I went with the overall first because I don't necessarily know how to break down each of the, the time frame of every stage. So for here, I thought I could make more assumptions in terms of the variables. And therefore, I went from the bottom 
Mm, interesting. Because I would have assumed that both of you would just know the number for your country and just try to think, hmm, is it more or less? No, I, the thing is, I don't know the number. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, that explains why you took the bottom up. Makes sense. But Joe, I just want to hear again. So you, you heard today that it's 50 something percent for the US, right? Yep. And your but assumption now I'm was... I'm actually wondering if that was only adults or if that was the whole population. And I'm not sure. So that could have thrown mine off. the whole population because the US was moving quite quickly. Yeah. So I'm just looking at the dates from the New York Times as of today. 55% of total population, if I see this correctly, is vaccinated and 47 is fully vaccinated um okay so the one thing that you that you joe got wrong was that uh, uk has less uh so that the percentage is lower it's actually higher one of the reasons okay. may also be that one of the big producers of the uh, of the vaccine so astrazeneca uh, is partially a uk company and that usually helps if you have a uh pharmaceutical company creating um, a vaccine in your own you know jurisdiction <laughs> um, but AstraZeneca is still uh, not allowed right in the US yeah okay okay yeah, and I know in Europe it's also quite recommended for the older uh, category age category mm -hmm. so even for us it's not recommended for younger right and is ages. it a two dose the AstraZeneca uh, yeah it is oh okay Oh yeah. So okay, I'll let you off the hook and give you the 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 the, the answer. <laughs> it is forty five point four million people. Oh wow! Yeah, it's sixty six percent. Yeah. Wow. Damn. Okay. <laughs> they are really high. Um, actually, I may be a little bit wrong. I'm just looking now at these numbers, but uh, because maybe I. It's either uh, 66, as I said, or 50, because now I see another number uh, from another source. And listeners, this is what happens a lot of the times. You find one source with one number, another source with another number. And um, then what I usually do is just try to find even more sources and see which one feels the most reliable. But we at least know that it's somewhere in the range between um, 65 and 50%. Um, which is pretty good, right? More than we expected. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, this is showing me the dangers of taking cultural assumptions from where you are and applying them <laughs> in a new context. Exactly, exactly. The interesting thing is, do you know which country has, at the moment, the highest vaccination rate in terms of the fully vaccinated population? You know, right? It's Malta. So it's it's a small nation, so that usually helps. They have sixty seven percent of fully vaccinated. Oh wow. Now I'm curious about Luxembourg. Uh let me see if I can find it. Luxembourg at thirty five percent fully vaccinated. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. For a small nation, not so good, no? Not so good. <laughs> <laughs> so this means that Joe was closer. Yeah. Congrats, closer Joe. In parentheses, I would say. <laughs> Well, that's all that counts in this game, right? Just being closer. Yeah. Doesn't matter by how much no. you win, you still win. <laughs> that's why when 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 I used to play this, we used to be very strict with when you uh, share your result, because otherwise you can just 
play strategically and if uh, Sheriff yeah. says 8.1 then I would say 8.2 and the whole <laughs> spectrum above 8.1 is my win um, yeah but great um, I hope we we kind of shared some uh, some thinking behind how to work with numbers um, do you have any maybe uh, last tips or thoughts on this process anything from your own work that you wanted to share with listeners around guesstimating or using numbers in your own, your own process I mean the, the one thing is that, that I always say is that use assumptions as assumptions not facts mm -hmm. and the second thing is the more variables you can bring in the more accurate or the closer your estimation would be so don't try to just use the, 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 the high level numbers if you can get more variables that will be more accurate in terms of Uh, projections or estimations for your business model. Mm. That's a great point. And I'll also say to de-risk this, you should make the process of creating the assumptions as collaborative as possible. So I'll, I'll usually kind of create yes. the structure for the model, like what type of, how, what calculations we're going to do, but then bring together a group of people with different types of knowledge and get them to all agree on the assumptions. So it's not all weighing on you. Yeah, that's a great point. So include as many sources as possible yeah. um, and treat assumptions as assumptions, which means write them down, be aware of them as assumptions. And you you are, in a way, multiplying these assumptions, which means that there's a high chance that you're wrong. And um, mm -hmm. just the best way then is to just try to test these numbers in a way or find yeah. the best sources. Cool. So congrats, Joe. You'll take the trophy okay. home. <laughs> <laughs> And thanks everyone for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and that you've seen how to use guesstimation also in your process. And again, if you'd like to learn more about prototyping with numbers or just in general more about business skills relevant for designers, you can join us in the next DMBA. Uh, so Joe and Sharif will be a part of that. So you may get to know them. Uh, right now we are accepting applications for the next intake, which starts on September 27th. And you can find more info on d.mba slash course. So that's all in this episode. Enjoy and talk to you soon. Bye-bye.